Well, we're glad you're here this morning. It's been good, hasn't it? Take communion and consider the holiness of God. We're uh, continuing to look at what does it mean for us as a church to live as the light. And um, over the next three weeks, we're going to look at the joy of discovering the Trinity. The joy of discovering the Trinity. And this is a topic that's way too big to fit into one message. So it will be explained and, and, and brought to us over the next three weeks here. And so I'd encourage you to come. We're going to put a comma at the end of today. And for some of you that may feel like it's in an uncomfortable space, that's intended um, so that you'll come back next week. All right? Uh, so, but no, it's in all seriousness, we will find a place and we'll stop and put a comma. But this message will continue to grow over the next three weeks. A.W. Tozer has said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we've talked about that before. But I believe that's absolutely true. And what comes to our mind when we think about God is, is such an important part about us that it's important that we think accurately about who God is and that we have an accurate understanding of who he is. Many times for us, it's, it's easy for us to start with ourselves and to find God. It's been said that, that God created man and man has been returning the favor ever since. And so we, uh, yeah, amen. And so we delight in creating God in our image. Last week I was grieved, and perhaps some of you were as well, to read of a, of a pretty famous Christian author and her husband who came out and made a statement about um, same-sex marriage that, that was discouraging as best. And I believe their motives are so pure. They're trying to find a way, how do we describe and define the love of God as it reaches into a culture that more and more is finding the church as being haters, and, and we want to be able to display the love of God, and so, so that to, to be able to do that, but we can't redefine who God is in order to make his love palatable to a culture who's not embracing of the love of God the way that it's been defined. God gets to define who God is. And it's important for us to know who he is. And it's important for us to know that at the core of who we are. This Tuesday, we will have opportunity to step into our polling places and cast ballots. And who, who you believe God to be will determine which circle you fill in as you walk into that polling booth. You see, there's many people who have never come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and they will walk into the polling booth, and they will cast a ballot based on what they think will be best for them and what will look good tomorrow. Maybe today. Maybe we're not worried about tomorrow because we live in a, a culture that's more concerned about the instant and, and the temporary nature of things. And so many people around the country will be casting a ballot based on what will feel good to them temporarily. But we are eternal beings, and we are indwelled with an eternal God. And so what comes to our mind when we think about God is also what we take into that polling booth. 
And we need to be very careful and very sure that we are voting as God's representatives. And there is a holocaust that is happening in our country. And God would not embrace that. There are, there are things that we need to consider that we need to vote based on who we know God is and his eternal purposes and who he's revealed himself to be. And it's important that we vote. But we must vote according to who God is. And what he has revealed is right and wrong. The platforms of the parties are online. You can look at them. I'm sure many of you have. But we don't vote the way someone without Christ doesn't vote, or does vote. We vote differently. And we do that because he's indwelling us, and he's guiding and he's leading. We don't do it on our own understanding. We understand that people are fallible. And we could look at these two candidates, and we could say, I don't like either one of them. But there's a party, and there's a process, and we live in this country. All right, that's as political as I will ever get. But it's important as we consider who God is. Because if we define God in our image, then we live our lives much differently. So, why do you believe what you believe about who God is? Today and the next couple of weeks, we're looking at the, this truth of who God is. And the verse that will guide us over the next three weeks is this. John chapter 20, verse 31 in verse 30 says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This verse, like so many other verses in Scripture, declare the triune God. Within this verse, we see clearly the triune God. Now, we don't necessarily find the word Trinity in Scripture, but all throughout Scripture from beginning to end, we see the truth and the beauty of the nature of God as he's revealed himself. And as he does that, he reveals himself as a loving triune God. The next verse in your outline there, it says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This verse will help us as we begin to try and attempt together to understand the triune nature of our loving God. And that's our big idea today. That God is a loving triune God. He's knowable in that he has revealed himself. So if we're going to know God, we need to go to the place where he has defined himself in Scripture. Scripture, you see, contains the truth of who God is. It is the truth of who God is. He has defined and described and, 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 and given of himself in this book so that we could understand him. The first thing we see as we look at, the, at this book that he's preserved for us is that God is, in the beginning, God. He is. God is. And he declares it. He doesn't explain it. He just declares it, that God is. 
And as he then begins to unfold who he is, he reveals himself as only one God. There's only one God. The verse there, it says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder from James. You believe there's one God, good. The demons believe that. Now, demons, as you probably are well aware, demons are fallen angels. They were created by God, and they were in the presence of God. They're created beings, not like us. They're not made in the image of God the way we are, but they're, they're creatures who were created by him. And at a point in time, Satan, who was also an angel, led a rebellion in heaven. Have you ever tried to imagine that? In the presence of God, Satan led a rebellion, and the angels that fell went with him, and they were the demons, and are the demons. Eternal beings whose eternity is secure in hell away from God because of their rebellion. You see, there's no redemption possible for angels. That's only for us. And so these demons believe there's one God. Do you know why? They've been in his presence. They know him. When Jesus walked on earth, and we'll look at this next week, they knew him. They understood who he was. They knew who he was. They know there's only one God from eternity past. Moses, as he comes and speaks to the nation that God had chosen, Israel, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. If you read on in Deuteronomy 6, you'll see that in so many ways what this is saying is that that God is the only one to be worshipped. It's not necessarily teaching that he's one person but that he is the one God to be worshipped. Him and him alone. No other idols are to be brought before him. Nothing else is to be worshipped other than God. And that God is one. But there are no other gods to be found before him. One object of affection. While while the verse doesn't necessarily teach mathematical singularity, it does teach the essence of who God is. And the essence of God is that he is one. And what this means is it's talking about the unity of God or the simplicity of God. The doctrine of the simplicity of God. And I don't know about you, but maybe you've never heard that before. And I remember the first time I heard that there was a doctrine called the doctrine of the simplicity of God, and I'm like, what? God's simple? Anybody here think God's simple? See, we understand there's a different definition to that word. See, the simplicity of God is speaking of the unity of God. Okay, the fact that God cannot be divided all right, that he is one in who he is and one in all of his attributes and characteristics. He is one. As we think about the attributes and characteristics of God, there are so many. Some of them are communicable and some of them are incommunicable. 
How many of you used that word in the last couple of weeks? Okay, incommunicable and communicable. Now what that means, big words, because we're talking about a big God. These big words, incommunicable, means that these are characteristics that, that only God has. Attributes and characters, characteristics that belong to him and him alone. Communicable aspects are those that he has in common with us. Because by his grace, as we image him, these are the characteristics and attributes that, that are us in his image. We image those characteristics and those attributes. Those are the communicable attributes. Okay, so let's think about some of the incommunicable, some of those that belong to God alone. God is, as I said, one. There's the unity of God. And then there's the independence of God. The independence of God. And this is, oh, this one's amazing. You see, it goes along with his eternality. There's the independence and the eternality of God. Now, the eternality of God is this, is that God always was and that God always will be. Okay? Never a beginning and never an end. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time wrapping my head around that one. I can get this. I, I can get that I'm here now and I'm going to live forever. For some reason, I have, I have a space for that in my mind. You know, but, but this business of never a beginning, that, that I have a hard time wrapping my head around. But that's who God is. He has eternality. Always has been always will be, and he has absolute independence. He needs nothing outside of himself. He needs nothing outside of himself. So, at one point in time, and we'll be looking at this, he decided to create. But prior to that point, he wasn't lacking because he hadn't created. One time I heard somebody say that God got lonely and so he created us. It's no, no. See, God never got lonely. He's not lonely because he's within himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in a perfect relationship. He's totally independent. He does not need anything outside of himself. That's who God is. God is immutable. Another great word. Immutable. It means that he never changes, ever. It's always the same. Always has been, always will be, always the same. Cannot change. Yesterday, today, forever. He's omnipotent. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. He's all-powerful. He's omniscient, knows everything. Omnipotent, has all power. Omnipresent, he's in all places. The words are so big, I get mixed up. Okay, so here we go. He's all-powerful. There is, there is nothing that's outside of his power, aside from the nonsense stuff, like can he make a rock so big he can move it, you know, that, that stuff. All-powerful. He knows everything. He knows everything that was, everything that is, everything that will be, everything that could have been, everything that might have been, everything. He knows everything. Everything he knows. And he's everywhere. There is nowhere where God is not. He's everywhere. 
These are these incommunicable aspects of God, attributes. How about some of those that he shares with us? Let's take a look at some of those. He's wise. He shares wisdom with us, his created. We're wise because we're in the image of him. He has perfect wisdom. We don't have his wisdom. We have the image of his wisdom. Truthful, faithful, good, loving, kind, merciful, gracious, patient, holy, just, righteous. That's our God. Jealous. Wait a minute. No, that belongs on the other side of the list, right? Jealous, that's, what? God said that. He told the nation of Israel, I am a jealous God. What does that mean? What does that look like as we try to process that? It means that he continually seeks to protect his honor. One God, worship none other than him, and he will jealously protect his honor. He's jealous for us. He pursues us. He's a God of wrath. He hates sin, abhors sin, hates all sin. He's perfect, he's beautiful, he's glorious. This is God. This is who God is. This is who he has revealed himself to be. There is only one God, and you will worship no other. So as we begin to unpack what does that mean, and, and we begin to look at the triune aspect of who God is, this triunity with him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're going to look at one of those attributes, and we're going to emphasize that, and I believe as we emphasize the attribute of love, we begin to, to find a window with which to understand the Trinity, perhaps in a way that we never have before. And the exciting thing is about this, not only do we understand God and the Trinity perhaps in ways, but we understand our salvation as well. In, in a whole different way, and we understand our creation differently because we're able to see who God is as he has revealed himself. God is love. In, in 1 John 4, there in your notes, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Life is available through the son of God. That's love. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is a sacrificial love. It's a giving love. God is a generous God. And he, <clears throat> he gives. Okay. He gives constantly. He's a giver. God is love. And as we begin to understand that, we begin to see that, it takes us to the truth that God is the Father. God the Father. We're tempted, you see, to start with God as creator. As we look at the Bible, as we read the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created. And so we start by saying, well, God is the creator. And God is this amazing creator who created all that there is. And oh, is that true? 
Yes, it is. From nothing God created. He spoke and it came to be. But the problem is if we start by defining God as creator, then we've defined a God who relies upon his creation for his identity. Okay? You guys with me? I am so glad we're doing this on a day when you got an extra hour's sleep. (laughs) You are all so alert. You see, if we start with God as creator, then for his identity, he's dependent upon his creation. And we've already discussed, he's not dependent upon anything. So that's not the starting point that we need to have. The starting point we need to have is the starting point that God has given us. And our verse tells us that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now we understand that verse. We've used it a lot. And we understand that that verse teaches there's no other way for us to come in a right stand before God the Father except through Jesus Christ the Son. He is the only way that we can have a right standing with God. But the verse, I believe, also teaches that he is the way for us to understand who God is. He came, Jesus, as the visible expression of the thoughts of God. He came to reveal the Father. He said, if you knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you've seen him. So now, we begin to get a glimpse how the first verse we looked at declares the triune nature of God. You see, it says, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. By implication, if there's a Son, there's a Father. And we've understood as we've looked that God has never changed. He's always been the same. God the Father. He has declared himself to be Father. So for all eternity, God has been the Father. And for all eternity, in order for him to be Father, there has to have been the Son. So for all eternity, there's been the Father. For all eternity, there's been the Son. Living together. Inseparable. One. Together. Father and Son. For all time. The Father is the one who begets the Son. And the Son is the one begotten by the Father. Okay, that clarified it. What does that mean and what does it look like? Well, God has revealed that for us in his word. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It's an amazing book found in the New Testament, which, which does such a, a powerful job of bringing the Hebrew scriptures into an understanding for us in the church. It says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You see, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is God. He said, I am the Father, are one. 
Now, if you want a book to read, which may help you begin to understand this in far greater depth than we'll be able to do, because probably some of the things I'm saying, you think, I need to hear that again, okay? If, if you're like me. That's why I come three times. No, um, so... <laughs> Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. I encourage you to, to grab it and read it. it. It will stretch you in a good way. But when he talks about this Hebrews 1-3 passage, he quotes uh, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, who lived in, 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 in 335. As the light from the lamp is the nature of that which sheds the brightness and is united with it, for as soon as the lamp appears... The light that comes from it shines out simultaneously. So in this place, the apostle, the author of Hebrews, would have us consider that both, the, that both that the Son is of the Father and that the Father is never without the Son. For it is impossible that glory should be without radiance and it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness. Now it's clear, right? Okay, the Father is never without the Son, but like a lamp, it is the very nature of the Father to shine out the Son. And likewise, it is the very nature of the Son to be the one who shines out from his Father. The Son has his very being from the Father. In fact, he is the going out, the radiance of the Father's own being. He is the Son. Okay, so... It's the idea that once the lamp goes on, there's light. Lamp on, light. It's just like you don't put lamp on, no light. Every analogy breaks down at some point. I understand if the light's burned out, and okay, don't go there. Just, just stay tracking with me, okay? I know if you're a literal person, you go down those paths. Don't ask me how I know. Okay, so, but, but you see that once the light goes on, the light, the the radiance of the, of, the, of the light is there. So, the Father, the Son, always together. So that God is the Father. That means he's the originator. He's the giver of life. He's the one who begets because he's the source. And the Son is the begotten because he's the radiance. So when we think of begotten, we think that, yes, there was a point in time when when Charlie was begotten by me, and there's a point in time where that started, but we understand the internality of God says there was never a starting point. He always was begotten of the Father. He always came out from the Father, radiated from him, always, as one, different roles. Okay. The Father of the Son. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me, the source of the glory. He says, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. See, the Father is the lover. The Son is the beloved. There's times in Scripture where it talks about Jesus loving the Father, but more often than not, it's about the beloved Son, that the, the love of the Father is pouring out to the Son. Next week we'll talk about that. At the baptism, the dove comes and the voice from heaven, this is my son whom I love and who I am well pleased. God is the father 
He's the father of the son. He's the father of Israel. Again, we see the triune nature of God in the, in, in the Hebrew scriptures, and this is so important. He says in, in Isaiah, Isaiah says, but you are our father, God. And God himself says, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. God is the father of Israel. God is the father of the saints. To all those in Rome, Paul says, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you all from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.12, to those who believe him, he gave the right to be called children of God, children born not by natural descent, but by God himself. In Romans 8.35, we can call out and say, Abba, Father, God is Father. Is the father of all creation. James, again, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights who called out each star one by one and called them each by name because of his mighty power. Not one of them is missing. He's the father of all creation. Jesus says, our father in heaven is how we pray. So as we begin to see the unfolding of the love of God as revealed in the Father, we now come to a place where we understand creation much differently because we're not coming to a place where a lonely God or an independent, you know, all by himself God who's just looking for people to worship him and all this comes. No, 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 we're looking at a Father who created, a Father who initiated creation. We have been created by a loving Father, not a distant God. Which Father would love His Son in this way? See, God is a loving Father. All of the attributes of who He is, one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Comma. We'll take this up next week. There's a lot more to be said. Can you tell? I can't tell you how important this is as Gabe and the team comes up. For us to fully understand this is to fully understand God in a way that maybe we haven't taken the time to. And listen, it's important because we're coming to a day and an age when, when we're going to be pushed on who is your God anyway because a loving God should do this. A God who cares should do this. A God who's kind should do this. And yes, a loving God in the way that I've defined him or I've created him should do what I think a loving God should do. But a God who's revealed himself to his creation as to what he's defined loving to be even myself, the most loving thing I do is to bring discipline into my children. There are boundaries, there are guidelines. To be loving without rules is not to be loving. So to understand that this is who God is and this is who he's created us to be. I can't wait to unfold this for you over the next couple of weeks as we, as we look at a whole new way, I think perhaps for some of us, as to what is our salvation and how does it find its roots in the loving and triune God? There are creeds that we say, creeds that we sing. 
And a creed is just a putting into words what we believe. But I'm challenging us to think, even as we sing this final creed, why do you believe what you believe? We'll all stand and sing, we believe this, but why do you believe it? Because I said so? Because God said so. Amen.